Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello and welcome to all you snoz wanglers and vermicious canids. We have a whole chocolate factory worth of tasty tech talk and tidbits for you today. Welcome back to another cracking tech talk with Matthew Dickerson. Get comfortable, folks. We've got some great stories for you today, particularly if you're into superheated steam dishwashers. But I don't want to give too much away just yet. At least, not before I bring in our master of all things technological, our metaphorical master chocolatier of the technology, Matthew Dickerson. What's been distracting you this week? Well, actually... Other things, but now Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is distracting you. What have you been watching lately? Oh, the Dubbo Drama Club. They put on an excellent production of uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, It was a fantastic show. My son was in it uh, as one of the ensemble members, um, but uh, I've just got to tip my hat to the people who created that. Well done, Joe Gibb and your team. Um, Absolutely fantastic. Absolutely. And apart from that, Roald Dahl, who did a little bit of creation in the first place as well. Yeah, Yeah. top to him as well. That's right. So Anyway, so I was thinking about other things, but now I'm just thinking about chocolate, James. Might have to take a pause and go and get some, but anyway, we'll, we'll put that aside for the moment. One thing that's attracted me this week has been this fascination that people have with electric vehicles and new electric vehicles and all the rest of it, and that's great. But I ran into a gentleman during the week who had a great story to tell me. He said his wife turned 50 and he was trying to think of something different to get her as a birthday present, which is what you want to do. Normally, of course, it's something that a lot makes of pressure him, that's right, makes <laughs> her feel like she's 29 again, is normally what you try and aim for. But he bought her. An old car. You think, ah, oh, big deal. An old car, an old classic car, whatever. That's kind of a bit of a throwback. And is that what people want these days? But he bought her a Morris Minor that was an EV. So he found, <laughs> a, yeah, he found a company in Australia. That's awesome. That converts <laughs> old cars. And he picked a Morris Minor. She ha- apparently had a, a liking for Morris Miners. Picked an old Morris Minor. He had it already converted. Or this is this particular company had it converted. Had lithium-ion batteries. Had a nice little electric motor in there. He got it and he showed me some pictures of it, showed me pictures inside. I haven't actually seen it in the flesh yet, but he was incredibly excited. But his wife was over the moon with it. It was only about $18,000, so it wasn't oh, incredibly wow. expensive. Yeah, wow. I would have thought for an old classic like a, a Morris Mine, you would have paid a lot more as its original version, let well, alone the fact you that you have to pay extra it. for the noise that it made, the traditional noise. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> for the oil that it leaked, you probably had to pay for all that as well. But it looks fantastic. And I just love that idea that we are taking some old classics. And again, the Morris Minor, there is a, a Morris Club in Australia that I've actually met with. They had a function there one day that probably had about 90 old Morrises going back almost 100 years, some of the Morrises that were yeah, there. Wow. And it was fantastic. But some of them, one guy showed me, lifted up the bonnet, kind of the side bonnet, pulled up the bonnet and had his little oil can under the bonnet because you had to squirt some <laughs> on, on the on the tappets across the top there to keep things going. And then you put the oil can back. So again, that's, that's a pain in the neck when you're in a hurry. Oh, it is. When you're well, late for work. <laughs> every 100 miles, he said, about every 100 every miles. Every 100 miles. You've got to stop and do that. Oh, dear. But imagine taking that old classic and then converting it to an EV. I just love that idea. So yeah, I'm looking yeah. out for more of those. There are a couple. Tip of the hat to them. Yeah, that's right. There are companies that do it. There are companies that specialise in it, whether it be old Porsches, old Morrises, whatever it might be. But great to see people actually doing it. And we've got him coming along to our electric vehicle group just to show the rest of the members this great old Morris. That'll be impressive. All right, let's dive into our first uh, episode today. And let's talk about undeclared swimming pools. Here's a new public menace, folks. Sneaky backyard splash zones have become of a concern in France. They're now adopting AI to scan aerial photographs of urban zones looking for unlicensed blobs of blue in people's backyards 
and taxing the perpetrators for their dishonesty. Matt, who knew that summer fun had such a seedy underworld? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? And I don't know what taxes you pay if you live in France for your pool. Or having a swimming pool. But obviously, if you don't declare a swimming pool, you get extra taxes. Well, I hope so. Those people that didn't declare, they get their back taxes and a fine or something else on top. Chlorine tax. <laughs> Chlorine tax, maybe that's it. Now, presumably at some point, what they used to do is wait for someone to report a swimming pool. They'd go and knock on your door. Hi, can I have an inspection? No, where's your warrant? Whatever. I'm not sure how the conversation went, <laughs> but basically... Find out a pool's there, then hit them with a tax. But you can imagine... <laughs> you're hiding a, a swimming pool in your backyard. <laughs> right. No, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Pretty hard thing to hide, isn't it? <laughs> but at some stage, someone knocks on a door, they find that you've got one, you start getting hit with a tax. I can't imagine it's a great process to go through to start knocking on doors randomly mm. to find people that have got pools. You probably spend more money on wages than you get back in taxes. So I reckon most people in France kind of know that, and mm. they say, you know what, they'll never find that I've got a pool. It's a pretty big thing to hide, but they'll never find that I've got a pool. I'll just put it in and ignore the tax. But they say it with a French accent, of course. Uh, Let's not. If I could do that, I would. <laughs> okay. but, but yes, we were. Yeah. But the French government got a bit too smart for them. So all these people who have been saying a couple of fingers up to the law, then now the French government has got some AI and some photographs, some aerial images of various parts. Now, at this stage, they've only taken in nine of France's 96 metropolitan departments and started doing the testing there, and they have found a lot of swimming pools. So they've found 20,356 undeclared pools. Undeclared, contraband, (laughs) smuggled in swimming pools. That's right. My goodness. It is a seedy underworld. It is. Well, that's generated (laughs) 10 million euro per year in additional taxes so far. The warning's probably going out now to all the other people in those other metropolitan departments, those other 87 metropolitan departments, for them to start saying, oh, wait up, they're onto us. We better start doing something about it. But again, it just comes back to this technology. You've got aerial photographs, and again, if you said to a human, just go and have a look at those photographs and try and find the pools there, it's probably a little bit quicker than knocking on doors, but it's still a fairly labour-intensive process. Mm. Throw AI at the problem and say, here's what a pool looks like, here's the general shape and size of a swimming pool, now go and analyse those, oh, what have you done it already? That's it. Now, <laughs> look down that list. So now you can be a bit more targeted when you knock on someone's door. You can say, I'll knock on your door and I'm pretty confident you're going to have a swimming pool at the back so you can tell me you haven't got one there. Because we've already seen it. That's right, we've already <laughs> seen it. So it is interesting to see how various organisations, various businesses, various governments use aerial photography, use AI yeah. to try and get information out of it. But I just, I, I love this idea and they're going to keep doing it, obviously. They think that, they're in the vicinity of 40 million euro they'll collect each year extra in taxes from this whole process. I have no idea how much the AI and the process is costing them, but you can't imagine it's costing them anywhere near 40 million euro to actually do this process. Well, all I can think of is that if you're going to have an illegal swimming pool, then you probably want to get a a pool cover that looks like a lawn. <laughs> Don't get them ideas, James. There'll be this whole process now where everyone will be quickly producing these green-covered pool covers, green-coloured pool covers. We've now got you some good news. If you're listening to this podcast courtesy of, of a 5G aerial, we can now definitively say that you can put away that alfoil hat Away for good now. Regardless of whatever other research your great uncle did, 5G will not influence your health for good or for bad. Matt, I say this like it's a big deal, but we all know that we've known this about about this for a long time. 
Oh, James, I've been using 5G, been using 5G, been using 5G for years, and it hasn't had any effect on me at all. <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> so it was an interesting question. You say definitive, and, and I agree with you, but it's hard because that old beautiful science saying, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Yeah. So we've got no proof that there is any problem with 5G in terms of our health. We kind of know that for lots of good scientific reasons. So we can sit here confidently and say, 5G is not impacting your health, but it's hard to say definitively. Now, but, but, when, but when a scientist does their work here, what they want to do is they want to disprove a hypothesis. So if you if you make your hypothesis um, that 5G has no ill effects on your health, and then you go to disprove that, and this is what scientists do, and they can't find a way of making it bad for your health, then we haven't proved it, but we've just got, again, as you say, no evidence to show that it, uh, it's a... So that's really what we're doing. Yeah. We're creating this falsifiable hypothesis so you can prove... I, was like, I hate saying that. <laughs> you can give evidence that it does cause you ill health, but we haven't been able to find that evidence. That's right, and that's, that's where we're at. So some people will still say, oh, we know it does, they just haven't got the proof yet, or we know it does, but it takes 100 years to come to fruition or whatever. Yeah, they've got a really sneaking hunch. <laughs> That's right. And as you say, my uncle told me to barbecue. And they've got this machine that keeps going tick, 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 when they hold it near the aerial. That's right. And it sounds impressive, doesn't it? So <laughs> it's, it's got to be there. So anyway, what they've done is a team of Melbourne scientists, and I'm pretty sure these scientists were pretty confident in the first place that they weren't going to find anything. But if they treated it scientifically, they would say, let's go out there and try and find some evidence that it is going to have an impact. And that's what we're talking about here. Mm. So we're not talking about, let's go and find a bunch of people with three heads. We're saying, let's go and find evidence scientifically that it should be having some impact on your health and then try and find some more information to prove that. Mm. So they got the, uh, so again, it's a group of scientists. Now, what they did was they said, they, they based the data on the International Commission on Non-Ionising Radiation Protection. And that says that you shouldn't have any more than 10 watts per square metre of radiation. So mm. that was their starting point. So they'd have some sort of starting point. They're not going to go around and try and find people that have been impacted medically, but they're going to try and find examples of radiation. Then they started doing testing on that, and this was focused around Melbourne, so a large metropolitan city with lots of towers. And what they found was that radio wave sources, whether they be 5G, 4G, 3G, TV, radio stations, etc., were about... 1,000 times below mm. what the maximum recommendation was. Wait, I'm just so surprised. <laughs> That's right. This is my surprised face. Everyone, <laughs> you can see it, surely. I'm very surprised there, James. So they actually found, as they kept doing all the testing, most of the sites were about 2,000 times below the limit. The highest radiation they found was only 700 times below the limit. But here's the clincher. It wasn't a 5G tower. It was a radio station towers. <laughs> so we've been listening to radio for a lot longer than we've been using mobile phones. So the highest risk, according to them, and when I say risk, it wasn't really identified as a risk, but the highest radiation was one that was good old-fashioned radio broadcasting. And that's the thing that we can't forget. We've got electromagnetic radiation from TV station mm. broadcasts, from mm. radio station broadcasts. Oh, yeah, and we have got some mobile phones. Mobile phones in Australia started in 1987, really. 1981, there was the 007 system, but the, the AMP system started or some sort of cellular system started about 987. Mm. So it's been around a lot less time than traditional radio waves. But these have all been out there. When you pick up your 2A radio on the farm and you say, hey, Jimmy, uh, you're coming over and help me out with this 
paddock that I'm working on here, that's electromagnetic radiation. All this stuff that's out there. And don't forget, yeah. our main problem, and, and we're talking all those things are non-ionising. Yeah. The main problem we've got with electromagnetic radiation is something that we don't have a lot of control over, and that's the good old sun sitting yeah. up there. And that is ionising radiation. So if you're going to be worried about some sort of electromagnetic radiation, then put your tinfoil hat on by all means to protect you from the sun, mm. not to protect you from 5G. Uh, yeah, it's just ridiculous. So radio waves have got the longest um, uh, longest wavelengths or the lowest frequencies, and then you've got microwaves, and then you've got infrared radiation. Then you've got visible light, and then as the, the frequencies get higher and the wavelengths get smaller, you've got UV light and that UV light is where the ionising radiation first starts those wavelengths there and then you've got x-rays and, and gamma rays now they're high energy um, and so they can cause some ionisation there but yeah, then people think, oh, but microwaves, and actually mobile phones are using a lot of microwaves. They're in the microwave range rather than the radio wave range. And so people go, well, microwaves, I cook food with microwaves. Yeah, it could be cooking my brain. But but again, in a microwave, you've got this closed box. It's very close proximity, and it's a standing wave. And we can have a whole physics lesson on that as well with a rotating table to enable uh, the the antinode or the, the the place of highest amplitude to, to cover the the food as much as possible, um, and uh, and that's how they work. So when you're standing at the bottom of an aerial, let's say you're standing right at the bottom of an aerial that is still twenty meters or thirty meters above your head, that's a long way for those microwaves which aren't in a standing wave to travel, and then they're not the right frequency to cause any trouble for you anyway. That's right. And they're dissipating yes. to the square. Yes, that's so right. As so it every metre that you get away from it, then you get, well, a quarter when you double the distance, you get a ninth when you triple the distance, you get a sixteenth when you quadruple the distance. Yeah. It gets less and less and less. And I suppose the other thing with some people, and again, it's this thing where someone says, I did science in year seven, mm. so I know what's going on. They can't yeah. trick me. And because 5G, I was actually intrigued to begin with as to why 5G suddenly would be so detrimental to our health when we've been using 4G for a number of years and 3G for decades. But then I worked it out because I read a conspiracy <laughs> site and it told oh. me that because 5G were millimetre waves, higher frequency, mm. that's why 5G was going to get you. But again, even though it is higher frequency, as you've said, it's still not anywhere near those ionising radiation frequencies. So it can be higher frequencies. At the moment in Australia, we get up to about 3.7 gigahertz. Mm. In the old 3G days, we were typically around 700, 800 megahertz. 4G's been up around as high as, say, 2.1 megahertz. 3.7 gigahertz, did I say 2.1 megahertz? I meant 2.1 gigahertz, mm. up to as far as 3.7 gigahertz. Obviously, that's getting higher, but still nowhere near those levels that you're talking about that need to be ionising radiation. That's right, yeah. So... Yeah, you've got to get past through the infrared spectrum, through the visible light spectrum, and into the UV spectrum before you get the really troublesome stuff. I don't so. know any phones that are using the UV spectrum mm. at this stage, but hold out for them. When they do come, yeah. that's when we can say, hold on, there might be some detrimental effects. I wonder effects. how many uncles have been doing their research also step outside to mow the lawn without a shirt on. <laughs> <you know? laughs> that's right. <laughs> Good point. But just one last one there. If you're still worried, if you don't believe what the team of scientists, the team from the Australian Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Agency have had to say, then go on to, they probably won't believe it anyway because it's still another government site, but yeah. go on to ACMA, the Australian Communication and Media Authority, and they've got an EME checker 
and that uses data from a whole bunch of measurements taken over the last two years. So there might be more information, but yeah, as I said, it's a government authority, so they're obviously in on the scam, they're in on all the misinformation, <laughs> so that mightn't help you, but it's another source of information out there that might give you some level of comfort, maybe, yeah. I'm dreaming, perhaps. Yeah, no, you've got to be selective about where you get your information from, <laughs> yeah, don't you? That's right. Yeah, conspiracy sites, they'll look after you. Words superheated, steam, and dishwasher together, and there's a germophobic demographic out there that are bound to lose their minds. Folks, this new dishwasher will kill even the most resilient bacteria in just 25 seconds without a hint of remorse. Matt, you had me at superheated steam, but as a domestic dishwasher, is this just a little bit of overkill? No, no, James. No, we have some severe first world problems that we want to solve. Right. And one of those first world problems is I put the dishwasher on. And sometimes, depending on the setting that I use on my dishwasher, sometimes it's 30 minutes before I can take my dishes out of my dishwasher. (laughs) Now, how can I survive like that, James? We need a solution to this problem, and the solution is superheated steam. Now, the main reason we run our dishwasher for that long is because we want to get the water nice and hot, take off a bit of the gunk, a bit of the rice or whatever that's left on the plates. You probably need to yeah, rinse that stuff off too. That takes more than 25 seconds, I'm sure. It does, but then I, I really don't want to catch a disease after I've taken my plates out of the dishwasher. I want to make sure the germs are dead on that. And so the solution at the moment is put some pretty hot water in there, run it around for a while, and then I'm pretty confident when I take my plates out, they're going to be bacteria-free, so I can eat off them again. I can't tell you how many times I've caught a disease from my dishwasher not washing my dishes <laughs> properly. <laughs> but that's because it takes half an hour, James. We yeah, don't want right. half yeah, an okay, hour. Gotcha. Yeah, So what we need is something that can do the job on the bacteria at least in, look, my cutoff would be 30 seconds, so 25 seconds. So you're happy with 30 seconds, but they can do it in 25. I'm, so I'm over the moon now. I'm <laughs> over the moon. So what they've experimented with, and at this stage, don't get too excited. You can't slip down to your local white goods, brown goods retailer and buy this dishwasher yet. They've been experimenting, and this is a university in Germany that's been doing it, where they've been experimenting with a single box and a single plate. So one plate uh-huh. at a time in 25 seconds, I'm not happy with that. I want to get more plates in there. So yeah. they'll keep progressing, hopefully. And they've hit that one plate with superheated steam. Now, superheated steam is when you take steam and you heat it to the point where there's no moisture left in there. So it's basically dry steam. You really need to get it all above 100 degrees Celsius, whereas mm. normal steam, it's escaping from water and it might be just above 100. It might be that little particle above 100, but other parts below. So it's not yeah. all above 100. So it's really getting rid of that moisture out of the steam and hitting it with that. Hitting it with 25, for 25 seconds, that was enough to get rid of all the bacteria there. But there was a minor problem in that the bits and pieces of rice, food, gunk, whatever – aren't taken off by the superheated steam. It's good for the bacteria, <laughs> but not for the other bits. Now, I thought Louis Pasteur was able to get things to 70 degrees, and he was pretty comfortable at 70 degrees. You were pretty well done. Oh, absolutely right. But he couldn't do it in 25 seconds, could he? Oh, he needed yeah, it for longer right. than 25 seconds. So yeah, this yeah, is the superheated okay. steam solution. Come back to time. You've only just packed the dishwasher. You hit the go button, and you've got to come back in 25 seconds and unpack your dishwasher. Well, I'm imagining something different here, James. Oh, okay. I'm imagining just a bit like a sushi tray where you just have plates that you put on your sushi tray and they go around past some superheated steam and it's ready to use again. None of this packing dishwasher stuff. Just take it on and off as you need it. No putting away the stuff. No packing them out again. That's going to make breakfast at our house look a whole lot different. (laughs) If we wanted this whole bit rotunda or rotunda. We just have one one bowl between us. (laughs) 
That's right. As soon as you use it, put it on there, bang, it's hit, and then someone else uses it. So reduce all that cutlery, all that, sorry, not cutlery, all the china that you need. (laughs) So, or the cutlery as well, I suppose. So the idea will be they'll create a dishwasher at some point in time. They'll have some water to get the gunk off, and then bang, hit it with superheated steam, and it's out ready to go. I'm hoping here, James, I'm, I'm backing it. Under 10 minutes. I'm backing with the water yeah. to rinse it and the superheated steam definitely under 10 minutes to make me happy. Yeah, okay. All right. Keep an eye out for well, that You've one. got a whole lot of packing and unpacking. Oh, no, no, sorry. We've already been through that. That's you right. just run it through and on conveyor belt. Tech paranoia is a beast and we're going to feed it right now with this next story. I bet you thought your charging cable was doing just that, just charging your phone and only charging your phone pause for effect. What if there was a charging cable that could access your data and send it to someone else without you knowing? Matt, cue the sinister music and dim the lights. You've got some more news from the deeps of the underworld, or the depths of the underworld, I should say. Now, people have been at various functions from time to time, James, and I carry a backpack that has a whole range of charging cables and bricks and all bits of pieces because I just kind of like to do that. to look after people. It's going to require a lot of trust now. It does because I have lent charging cables to people. People have said, oh, have you got a whatever type of cable it is? And I said, sure, I've got everything in here. Do you mind if I download all your data? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to actually say to those people, well, you do know that I could be giving you something a bit sinister here. Now, I'm a trustworthy kind of guy, so I wouldn't be doing that. But the next time someone offers you a cable or... You might be at a conference and they're giving away free cables, for example. Oh. Have a good look at that cable. If it's a government conference. Just <laughs> <laughs> if it's a conference that's talking about how safe 5G is, then be very, very aware, <laughs> obviously. So this particular cable, and this was a guy talking about his cable that he created at DEF CON, which is a hackers conference. I don't quite understand how you can have a hackers conference. It does seem like having an yeah. organised crime conference. But anyway, ignore that fact for the moment. The cops are standing at the door just, just putting handcuffs on people as they walk in. That's right. You've registered like this conference, sir. You, sir. Would you mind just stepping into this room? So this guy was talking about this cable he's created. It's called a O.MG Elite. I don't know whether the OMG is like, oh my God, or mm-hmm. whether it stands for something else. But it looks like, and I looked at some videos of this. I haven't been to a hackers conference just for the record there, just for any of those police out there <laughs> listening to this. <laughs> but when you look at this cable and you look at the size of it, it looks marginally larger on the two connecting ends ah. than a normal charging cable. They make these cables in USB-C, in Lightning, whatever your variety that you want is. You plug in your phone to your computer, for example. So you might be doing that because you might want to transfer some data off. You might want to do that because you might want to use it as a hotspot where you plug it in. And then once you plug it in, that powers a Wi-Fi device inside the cable. It's incredibly small. And I looked at an X-ray of it and the componentry is very small. Now, that's a good thing if you're paranoid about it because it's so small, the Wi-Fi signal that it transmits is only fairly low power. So I've got to be fairly close to you. I can't have that transmitting and sit on the other side of the world or even the other side of the room. So, hi, James, I'll lend you my charging cable. Do you mind if I sit right next to you? (laughs) That's right. I want to be your best friend and just cuddle up beside you (laughs) and let's rub elbows. on your shoulder while we do this. (laughs) That's right. So it does transmit a low-power Wi-Fi signal. Okay. And that's enough for a couple of things to happen. First of all, anything that goes between your phone and your computer can be picked up by this and transmitted out the I sit there beside you and just scrape that data off as it's going between your phone and your computer. 
but I can also then access information on your computer because I can actually make this device simulate, for example, a keyboard. So if you plugged in a keyboard with it, that'd be really bad, but I could also track what's happening on your keyboard. So while you're going onto your banking site and typing Passwords your password in, then I'm seeing there going, oh, that's a funny password you use, James. What do you mean? Oh, oh nothing, nothing, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what about that local sporting team? <clears throat> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So this sounds incredibly scary incredibly intrusive and I'm kind of trying to think of what the good reason you would have this for is because surely people would say oh an air tag is good because it helps you find your things but could be used to track someone and do bad things to them but in this case I'm struggling with the first step of the Mm. oh it could be used for this in a good way the only way I can see this being used is in a bad way Probably the only saving grace at the moment is they're a bit expensive. The guy that makes them, there's only one guy making them at the moment, the guy that makes them sells them for about $150, which seems like nothing if I can get in and steal all your data if I'm targeting you. If I'm handing them out at a conference, it's a fairly expensive way to just hand out random cables that hope someone might use it yeah. where I hope they might have some data that I might want access to, et cetera, et cetera. So they're probably going to be used more targeted. So, so you're just, wondering why you would buy it for yourself and why <laughs> you would use it for yourself. Like, would there be any purpose for that? I, I tried to think of that. I, I honestly tried to sit there and go, now, how could I use this in a good way? What would I be doing? And I couldn't. I could not come up with anything. Happy to hear suggestions from our listeners about why you might want a cable that stealthily gives you Wi-Fi access to a computer or a phone without any other device connecting and without telling people about it, all hidden inside a little tiny cable. No, I, I couldn't come up with it. The only reason you do this is if you wanted to steal some data or someone. But this, it just gives you an idea, doesn't it, of the sort of things people are coming up with out there mm. to try and get access to our data, data, data. Data is so important, the data we've got. And we don't think that we're that important. We, we don't think we're the President of the United States where someone's trying to attack us and get all the information. But... We've got bank accounts. Yeah, that, well, all you need is a name and um, you know some other details, and they can make a passport. They can make their able well, apply for a credit card, using steal identity, steal money, all those sort of things. So, you know, most of us have got some money. You might have a hundred bucks in the bank. Yeah. You probably don't want to lose that hundred dollars. Someone can steal that, and if it's easy for someone to do, they mightn't spend three days trying to steal your hundred dollars. But if they can just hook up this, and five minutes later they have got your passwords, then spend five minutes stealing a hundred bucks. Well, it's Pretty good value for money from their perspective. So anyway, I suppose the thing from this is when someone offers you a cable, a bit different if you might ask someone for a cable, if they offer you a cable randomly, maybe just have a little question mark over that. (laughs) (laughs) If they're wearing dark glasses and a shady sort of hat and a trench coat, don't don't even stop. Keep walking. And if they're your best friend afterwards. If they follow you around (laughs) like a puppy dog, then that's a bad sign. The winds of change are blowing, folks. At the social media platform that brought us the gems, such as Constant Negative Press Kavefi, do you remember that? <laughs> or the Caesar Salad, and the, sorry, I'll say that again, the Caesar Salad at McDonald's is so good. And I smell like a men's colon. These are all Twitters. <laughs> Tweet. These are all Twitters. Can you imagine? Like, I'm a goose. Anyway, Twitter is changing its game up and will now let you keep your silly gaffes just between you and your closest mates. Matt, I can still share my Kova Fefe um, with the rest of the world if I want to, right? If you want to do that. If you want to just go wild. But maybe some people are a bit intimidated by that because when you do something on social media, you've got to be either really thick-skinned mm. or really confident in what you're saying because mm. you do launch it and it launches. And sometimes you look back and go, oh, either that didn't quite do what I thought it was going to do or I didn't yeah. quite say what I was thinking or didn't get the reaction I thought I'd get out of that particular one. And again, it is exposed to the world. Now, some of us have got 
friends, in inverted commas, on social media that might be thousands, tens of thousands, millions of friends, but how many of those are really friends? And my definition of a friend is if I'm broken down in my car, mm. who can I ring to say, can you come and help me out, please? And that reduced the list fairly dramatically yeah. down to, yeah, not many people, my wife maybe. <laughs> so I, hope. I would stop. Oh, I would you. stop what I'm doing and I'd come and rescue you. I'm up to two, my wife and James. Yes. Thank you very much. I'll hold you to that one day probably. <laughs> <laughs> but with something like Twitter, they've now decided that maybe there are some things that you might want to do amongst people that you trust a little bit more put out a tweet that doesn't go to the world but goes to a circle of people much smaller, a maximum of 150 people. So it might be five of your friends, it might be 10, might be 149. But again, what Gee, it does... 150 people, that's Durham's number. We'll talk about that another time. Okay. Um, so <laughs> effectively, it means that you can just test out the market, test the waters, or just share something amongst your group of friends. So, for example, someone has a birthday party and they know they've got a few friends on Twitter, for example, wouldn't mind just sharing a picture of this birthday party, maybe your son's birthday party, but you don't really want all these people mm. looking at your stuff across the world. Do they really care and what can they do with that? But, yeah, I want to find a convenient way to tell some of my friends. So I think this is the logic of it. Put 150 people in a group. Some people might use a text group, they might use some other grouping in another social media tool. And this is really all about Twitter trying to remain relevant, trying to compete against every other social media platform, making sure that they're all coming up with ideas that are going to make sure that you keep using their platform because it's such a changing world out there at the moment. Mm. But I actually can see some use for this. I can see people using this for in two ways. One, to communicate with some of their closer friends. And secondly, as a way of just testing the water a little bit. Put it out there to a small group. Oh, how'd the reaction go? Nah, it wasn't too bad. Bang, let's go to the wider world. And hopefully the reaction's about the same. Yeah, very good. And look, folks, just on the side, Durham's number, I'm pretty sure it's called Durham's number. That's uh, a number that's been mathematically calculated as the number of people that you can maintain as friends at any one time. Oh, that's a lie, James. I can't maintain 150 friends. They're in different circles. They're in different circles. So you've got a tight circle of about five, and then that grows to another circle of friends that you regularly see, uh, but they're not necessarily your closest friends. And so I think that's about 10 or something like that. And you can look, there's about five or six circles of friends, and when you add them all up, it comes to 150. But people fall out of those circles, and they change their position in those circles at various times. 150 is Durham's number. I haven't heard Twitter's gone, number. okay, we're going to go with that number. And that That's might, how many friends you're allowed to have. That might be exactly it. But I find it's it's hard. Friends take time. You've got to maintain no, I know. That's, right. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. And so that's why people fall out and they come in. Yep. And, um, yeah, that's yep. exactly right. That's right. And let me just say for the record there, all my friends that I've got, I love giving you my time, of course. I'm not complaining <laughs> there. But 150, but Just wow. watch out, folks. You're going to get a phone call one day. He's going to need you to help you with his car. With his car. <laughs> Plastic door keys in hotels, just so 2022. With all the power of the modern world tucked into mobile phone apps, surely it would make sense for hotels to, of tomorrow to tap into some of that action. Matt, is there even going to be a need for the friendly face behind the desk at the hotel reception anymore? Look, I hope not, James. I think we've got We're better ways. We're waving goodbye to the hotel receptionist. Just about. We've got better ways to get More into our hotel rooms. employment line. Oh, please. One with the blacksmiths <laughs> and the coopers and the <laughs> seamstresses. And, and the yeah. mechanics for <laughs> petrol cars. <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting that when you look at the way you get into hotels now, 
it seems better than it used to be. I'm sure at one stage I can hardly remember when there used to be keys for doors, but now you get your plastic key and it can be programmed to get you in the lift and it stops at a certain time when you check out so you can't get back in your room and all those sorts of things. That's all fantastic. But it's at the point now that we use our phone to do things like get into a plane. So mm. we've got our boarding pass in our plane and we might scan that in in the first line and then show that to the steward or stewardess when we get onto the actual plane. So we might use it a couple of times and that seems to be working quite well. People have become accustomed to that and now they're flying again. That's all good. So hotels have tried it a bit, but it doesn't seem to have been going that well for them. Really? Part, yeah. I would have yeah. thought, of, yeah, the, 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 the jump to that is fairly logical. Well, it, it seems logical, doesn't it? And there's a couple of issues with it. So the first thing is that at this stage, only about 17% of hotels across the US have converted over to some form of mobile phone key, if you like. So that's not a lot. It hasn't really been widely adopted compared to airlines, just about every airline now is at the point where you can use your mobile phone as your boarding pass. But the difference seems to be the researchers say that when you're getting on a plane, you use it on average two times. When you're using your key in a motel, you need to use it up to 20 times for your stay because you need to come into the lift and then you go to your room and then you come back down because you're going to dinner and then you come back up. You're using the car park. All those things. So you're doing that over and over again. And then you get to the point where people are not quite understanding it. And I read some reviews as to people that were a bit frustrated with some of the motels that have got it. And one person said, I was so frustrated. I got up to the room and I read the instructions on what I had to do. And it said, tap my phone to get into my room. And I sat there for 30 seconds tapping the back of my phone with my finger and (laughs) I couldn't get into it. I thought the door was going to open. And then I kept trying things and then finally I worked out it meant tap on the back. Oh, look at that, the door opens. So there's a bit of education to go there and I think that'll obviously get better over time. But I think the other big thing is that they're now able to, some motels are putting them into your wallet. So rather than have an app that you've got to download, because that's all a bit inconvenient, Mm. you can now add it to your wallet. So then your watch, for example, or your phone, you can actually use it and access it much quicker. And I think that'll probably be the key, excuse the pun, to changing people over to actually using these rather than actually having a specific app. Because how many apps do we have now? There's so many apps for every different thing. Mm. When you say to someone, download our app to use whatever feature you've got, people go, oh, another app, oh, another password I've got to try and remember, oh, it's all Mm. too much trouble, just give me the plastic key. On the flip side, when people have been interviewed, and I watched some interviews there of people that love doing this, you normally book your motel room online. You normally pay for it online. And then you turn up because everyone's booking in at about the same time and there's a lineup of 10 people in front of you. You go, oh, if only I could just skip this part of the process and go straight to my room. People that are using the key on their phone can do that. They turn up the motel, they go straight to the lift, open up their wallet or their app on their phone, swipe the actual lift, go straight to their room, swipe the room and they're in. They didn't need to interact with the front counter at all. Now, they've still got the front counter for any help they might need, but they didn't need to interact with them to be able to get into the room. And that's the slowdown process. The same with checking out. The only reason you check out now is to hand over your key. You don't want to just dump the key and run, or you might have to pay mm. some part of a bill. But if you change all that to be online, then that makes it better. And I stayed at a motel the other day where room service was the QR code like a lot of cafes have now. And when I did the room service, at the end of it, it said, do I want to add it to my room or do I want to pay for it with credit card? And I went, well... It makes it easier for me to check out if I just pay for it with my credit card now. So my room service, I pay with on my credit card so that I knew when I checked out, my room's already been paid for, so I could just hand the keys over and keep going. It's changing. Very good. It's all changing. Very streamlined now.
Now, we love our wearables here at Tech Talk. My watch counts my steps, measures my heart rate and my sleep. It even tells me the time when I need it to. Well, there's a new generation of wearables that can tell you even when you're stressed, or tell you when you're stressed, I should say. Matt, I can usually tell when I'm stressed by the way people go totally silent around me and um, refuse to make eye contact, start lodging formal complaints uh, to HR and whatnot. Um, What's an app on on a smartwatch going to do for me? I'm actually quite impressed at the first instance that you've got one of those flash ones that tells the time. Mm. Wow, no, 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 yeah, it's pretty well. impressive. Yeah, I didn't know they still existed, actually. <laughs> this is interesting. We have talked about it a little bit that wearables, the whole area of wearables is the next big thing. And when you think about just how unhealthy we're getting in society and how much we're trying to look at how unhealthy we are, it makes sense for people to look at their heart rate that might be too high or get their BMI or get their fat percentage or all those things or how many steps they're not doing for the day, for example. Mm. So all those things make sense. What we're probably not doing in any of that is looking at our mental health as opposed to our physical health. So we know we're physically unhealthy. We also know that probably mentally we're probably not in great state across the world either. And that's exactly what you've got some of these products at the moment. So there's a new product. It's from the same founder as Tinder. Uh, Now, you might say that he's responsible for some of the ill mental health in the world at the moment, but I won't I won't go down that path. But and now he wants to measure it. Maybe, maybe he's made people un, unhappy and so he's now measuring it. But this is actually a wearable that tries to monitor your stress levels. And how does it do that? Because that's the first thing I thought of. It measures things like electrodermal activity, so sweat levels. It measures your heart rate. It measures your skin temperature. And it's all part of the process that the assumption is that those things will change depending on what you're doing and your stress level. So obviously your sweat level will increase if your device that you're wearing detects that your heart rate's at 180 because you're out running a marathon. So it's okay. But if you're sitting there and your heart rate's at a resting heart rate and then there's no activity, you're not moving, but Mm. your heart rate goes up and your sweat levels start to go up above some baseline that it would monitor, then that's when this starts to put some things together and say, I think this person might be stressed. And then it gives you a warning about it. I'm not... Like an alarm, meh, meh, meh. Oh, that just makes you even Stop more stressed. Stop being so stressed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't know what you do when you detect those levels of stress, but maybe being aware of it is the first step to addressing it in some Starts way, shape, or form. playing the sound of running water. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe yeah. you're stressed because you need to go to the toilet. That's the last thing you want to hear. <laughs> that's right. You're not helping this at all, are you, James? <laughs> but one of the things that's interesting is they're going to do a subscription model. So the actual hardware will be very cost-effective or maybe even zero, but you'll pay $20 to $30 a month on some form of contract to give you these updates and give you information about your stress levels. That Mm. might make you stress that you're paying so much of your weekly wage to someone telling you whether you're stressed or not. So I'm not, I'm not convinced yet. I'm not convinced whether it's snake oil yet or whether <laughs> there's actually got some real science. What I'd like to see, and I've only seen a little bit about this particular one, but what I'd like to see is a whole bunch of subjects where they do the testing on them to get some base levels for average humans out there mm. and then start to apply that information back to what you are and your particular circumstances are. But I, I think the thing here that's interesting is that we are just looking at measuring so many different parts of our body function to try and make us healthier, live better, live stronger, all the rest of it down the track. Yeah. Well, yeah, fingers crossed that there's some merit in it. Now, finding focus with cameras, whether digital or box brownie, 
has always required a bit of space within the camera. It's just a bit of physics, folks. But all rules are made to be broken, so why should physics be any different? Folks, we are now looking at a new generation of wafer-thin cameras that can maintain a long focal length despite their uber-narrow design. Matt, I believe it was Scotty from Star Trek who said, you cannot change the laws of physics. And how's that for an accent? <laughs> but the makers of this cameras, a camera was, uh, they were clearly not trekkies. That actually sounded more like Willie from Simpsons, <laughs> I think. <laughs> was it Scotty or was it Willie? You can't change the laws of physics. <laughs> one of the things that's interesting is people talk to me sometimes about various bits of technology and mobile phones is one of those things they talk about and they complain that the camera doesn't have a very high optical zoom. Mm. And I've said in the past, and I may have to take it back now, but I've said in the past, you need a longer focal length. So you need a longer distance between a front lens and a rear component of the camera mm. to get that longer optical zoom. And when you look at some of the smartphones on the market at the moment, you do see the fact that some have got a bigger bump. So they can get the rest of the phone down very skinny, but they end up with a bigger bump because they need to make the camera lens a bit deeper. Mm. Now, don't confuse optical zoom with digital zoom. I'm not much of a fan of digital zoom because mm. all digital zoom does is takes whatever image is being picked up by the sensor and then blow it all up a bit, yeah. which just means that every pixel gets larger. So when you look at it, you go, oh, yeah, everything's larger, but it's really just increasing the size of the pixels, which isn't really a good zoom as such. Optical zoom is what you really want. So you see those cameras on phones that have got one or two or even three times, but once you start getting past that, you're getting deeper and deeper. Now, I did see one camera on a phone that was incredibly clever. It actually took the lens on the back of the phone and then it had a, a mirror at 45 degrees inside the phone and then shot the signal, the, the light down inside the phone. Down the length of the phone. That's right. Wow. To get the actual sensor down inside the phone to give you that optical length via the mirror. For whatever reason, it didn't really take off. That phone brand was a bit of a no-name brand, but if it was a really good idea, you'd think that the big manufacturers would have jumped all over it, but they didn't, so maybe mm. it didn't work that well. But I loved the idea of the ingenuity. Then I thought maybe someone will put a camera on the edge of the phone, so you point your phone down the actual angle of the phone to try and do it, but that never really took off either. This one will take off once they solve the minor problem in how to manufacture it. This is a bit of one of those things that Einstein used to do. Einstein was great at theoretical physics and saying, mm. this is what I know to be true. Now you guys go and spend the next hundred years solving that, which is <laughs> what's happened in some circumstances. Yeah, yeah. This is a concept called space plates. Now what a space plate does is it squashes the empty space out of a camera so that you do get a longer focal length without getting a longer focal length. It sounds like magic, doesn't mm. it? It sounds like the TARDIS. Yeah. It sounds like so yeah, yeah, we, we're playing around with space time here and we're squashing space. It does sound a bit like that. What they say, what the researchers say, is that a space plate mimics the way light propagates and spreads in empty space, but over a much smaller distance. Now, they did talk about face plates, uh, space plates in the past, not face plates, sorry, <laughs> space plates in the past, and they created one that was, had 25 alternating layers of silica and silicon, mm. and the idea there was to basically get to that point where you did compress it. They've managed to do that and create a camera that does do exactly what I'm talking about, only in one colour at this stage. Ah. So you can have a mono photo, but you can have really good zoom on it or have colour at normal. Now, I don't think it's ever going to take off. But the fact they're able to do it with one colour, then they're talking about basically getting to the point where you'll be able to do it in other ways. Wow. They've also managed to create one that's got 
a section made of calcite and it needs to be immersed in glycerol. But again, I can't see many people going for a camera on their phone that's got a bunch of glycerol bouncing around in there as part of the camera. But it just sounds fascinating that you'll be able to do this. Now, I don't think this is going to happen for three years. I think we'll see some commercial reality in this at some basic levels in three years, maybe five years before we're all just taking cameras that have got 100 times optical zoom with something that's five millimetres thick. But it does sound fascinating, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely, and and this whole idea of squashing space um, is is yeah quite remarkable. It sounds like a bit of special relativity, but uh, yeah, and dig deeper into that another time maybe. EV charging outlets require some specialised infrastructure. We all know that, and you can't necessarily just plonk them anywhere. It may take some time to get them set up across the state, and the demand for them is increasing particularly for owners who don't have off-street parking. But creative brains are ticking and plans are afoot to convert power poles into charging stations. Matt, who let common sense off the leash here? I want to know why I didn't come up with this idea, James. It seems too obvious. All these power poles around the place and all they're doing is just passing power. That's right. Now, you've said the magic word there. It's power pole. That kind of gives some indication about the fact that it's got power at that power pole. Light poles are the same. You've got lights that need power, so there must be power in the light pole as well. I mean, some power obviously is underground now, which is modern suburbs have got underground power, but you've still got light poles. Mm. They've still got to have some light up them. So you've got this whole concept, exactly as you said, where you've got power there. Why not put a charging point on the power pole? There's about 25% of people in metro areas that don't have any off-street parking. Mm. So they might live in an apartment block, for example. They might just live in an area that doesn't provide any sort of off-street parking. Terrace houses all through Surrey Hills and whatnot. All those, yeah. So what do you do? You park out on the street. And that's one of the reasons. There are many reasons people haven't bought EVs yet en masse. But one of the reasons is people say, well, I buy this EV. How am I going to charge it? Because NRMA has said that 80% of charging is done by people at home. Most of the rest do their charging at work. Only a very small percentage of people do their main charging, their majority charging at shopping centres or at public charging stations. So if you can get some charging at work, that's great, but most people just do it at home because that's convenient, makes sense, very easy to do, except if you haven't got that off-street parking. Mm. So there's a project being put out at the moment. Nine council areas across the state of New South Wales are actually having these charges installed, only 50 in this first trial, but they will be installed on light poles, on power poles, in areas where people will be able to plug in a charge. Now, they're not the high-capacity charges like you might see at a charging station because the amount of power you need to provide, for example, 350 kilowatts in a charging scenario, mm. you need some other bit of equipment and you need lots of power. some infrastructure, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So they're not trying to do that. They're just saying we're doing what I would call fast charges rather than just a PowerPoint charging. So still maybe 7.2 kilowatts, charging at maybe 50 kilometres an hour. So the idea would be you pull up overnight at your house and you find your power pole that's got the charging point and you plug that in. There'll be an app, of course, because everything needs an app. You'll be able to look on that app. You'll get a warning when your car is charged so you can move it to let the next person come along and charge. It all just makes so much Mm. sense. At the initial stages, it looks like they'll be free to charge. Again, part of that trial, get people encouraged to use them, and then there'll be some way you'll pay for that power in terms of the app that you'll have on your phone. It just it sounds like a really smart idea. As you said, a bit of common sense has prevailed in this scenario. And one less reason, James, it'll be out there for people <laughs> to say, ah, oh, I'd love to buy an EV, except 
well, hold on, that charging at home is not such a big issue anymore. the grid that's overloading, Matt? Oh, don't get started on another <laughs> one, James. <laughs> we'll have to solve that one next. <laughs> so it does sound quite good. There's a potential, apparently, from the developers of this to say about 190,000 similar EV chargers could be installed. I assume that's across the state, maybe it's across the nation, but obviously a lot of opportunities. And I can't mm. see that every power pole, every light pole down the street would have these installed, but it's a good place to start to just mm. look at those. And all the power, just to make you feel a bit more comfortable, James, all the power providers, part of the trial, will be all green power. So it's a contract they've got to provide all that power in green power. Wow. Okay. There's a whole bunch of reasons to maybe consider your next purchase or reconsider your next purchase, I should say. <laughs> maybe. And on that note, Matt, I have to jump into our glass elevator and get the hell out of here. <laughs> Thanks for yet another cracking tech talk, Matt. Uh, thank you, James. I'm going to get some chocolate. <laughs> I'm off to recycle my alfoil hat now that I know that 5G is okay. Might go and cover a lasagna or something. Thanks for tuning in once again, folks. Uh, my name's James Eddy. It's been a pleasure bringing you yet another tech talk. I hope to see you again in another week's time.